What's changed is that we're really, really focused on controlling information on the internet at large and encryption is getting swept up in it. And I think law enforcement and intelligence community, the folks who started the original crypto wars, are really bootstrapping off of that larger conversation of wanting to clean up the internet of all of this garbage. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Before we start, we at Malwarebytes have just released our 2023 State of Malware Report, a cybersecurity playbook tailor-made for resource-constrained businesses. Inside it, we reveal the top five cyber threats targeting businesses this year, including Lockbit and Sockgolish, and we break down how they're delivered, where they spread, what they destroy, and what businesses need to do to stay operational. You can download and read the 2023 State of Malware Report now by visiting www.malwarebytes.com S-O-M. That's S-O-M as in State of Malware. Again, find the report at www.malwarebytes.com S-O-M. Our main story today is about encryption and the question of who encryption is good for. The short answer to that question is everyone, by the way, but not everyone across the world wants it that way. Let's start in the United States. In 2020, a Missouri lawmaker introduced the Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act into the U.S. House of Representatives. The bill, which did not pass, was trying to solve a problem that has been around for decades, which is that police claim that their capabilities to investigate crimes have become increasingly limited because some of the evidence for those crimes is encrypted. So think about iMessage or WhatsApp or Signal and think about the conversations you have on those apps. You probably just talk with friends and family and send photos or videos, joke around, make plans, leave someone on red, whatever. All the conversations that happen within those apps are protected by a technology called end-to-end encryption. End-to-end encryption is the term we use to talk about the technology that secures data that is sent and received between devices or people or accounts. From one end to another end, the data, messages, photos, emojis, GIFs, is encrypted. And only the intended recipients of this data can actually read it. If someone else somehow nabbed your message in cyberspace as it traveled to your friends or family, that eavesdropper in the middle would not be able to read that message. Instead, the eavesdropper would only see a complex string of letters and numbers that make no legible sense. To oversimplify this, it would be like sending a completed Rubik's Cube in the mail. Every side is one solid color. But during transit, the Rubik's Cube got scrambled up, and it could only be solved or unscrambled 
by the person receiving it. This is a good thing for privacy and security. It means that only the people who you want to read your messages can read your messages. But for a growing body of lawmakers and law enforcement officials, this is a bad thing because it means they can't see the messages. They want to see those messages because, according to them, seeing those messages is key to stopping crime. After the introduction of that Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act back in 2020, the U.S. Attorney General at the time, William Barr, praised the bill, saying that, Although strong encryption is vital, we cannot allow the tech industry to use encryption that blinds law enforcement and prevents it from thwarting or investigating serious crimes and national security threats, including terrorist plots, cyber attacks, and sexual exploitation. The danger is particularly great for children, especially during this time of coronavirus restrictions when children are spending more time online. Survivors of child sexual abuse and their families have pleaded with technology companies to do more to prevent predators from exploiting their platforms to harm children. Unfortunately, these companies have not done enough, which is why this legislation is needed. Privacy and public safety are not mutually exclusive. I am confident that the tech industry can design strong encryption that allows for lawful access by law enforcement. Encryption should keep us safe not provide a safe haven for predators and terrorists. Okay, so this argument, right, that encryption is a threat to us, it's old, and it's gone through many iterations in many countries, uh, several of which belong to an intelligence-sharing alliance called the Five Eyes, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. In repeated arguments made by those governments to their people, encryption has been framed as a threat to national security, providing technological cover for terrorist plots. It has been framed as a threat to stopping human trafficking. And as you just heard, it has been framed as a threat to our capabilities to catch sexual abusers of children. These are serious crimes, and they must be taken seriously as well. But as we'll learn about today, the argument for saying no to government proposals isn't that these aren't serious crimes, that, that global and intimate threats aren't real. They are. The argument for saying no to government proposals is that letting someone else look at encrypted messages, by definition, weakens encryption. And it weakens it for everyone. The argument is that there is no middle ground on encryption. Today, to help us understand how other parts of the world treat encryption, what the latest threats to it are, and why the same bad ideas on restrictions, which have provably failed before, never seem to die, we're speaking with Mallory Nodal, Chief Technology Officer for the Center for Democracy and Technology. Mallory, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to have you here. And we have quite a bit to jump into. Uh, we haven't really talked about encryption specifically on this show. And so it's a great chance to dig into quite a bit. And I wanted to start with a pretty broad question here, which is that, so in the United States, you know, the stories that we hear that frame end-to-end encryption as a threat, particularly stories from the Department of Justice and the FBI, those stories focus on things like terrorism and child safety. We, we just heard a quote from uh, the former attorney general, but I wanted to expand on this. What 
stories do other countries and jurisdictions tell their people about encryption? This is a good question because there are so many different stories to tell and anti-encryption legislation is really crapping up all of the world. And so, yeah, we've seen a lot of different arguments over the years. I'll even go back kind of far, relatively speaking, in 2014 about, that's actually when WhatsApp announced it was going to be end-to-end encrypted. So that caused... um, some countries anyway, to really investigate that, just because maybe it wasn't that popular in the US, but in the global South, it's WhatsApp is really popular. In 2014, you'll also remember that Mugabe was being ousted from Zimbabwe and protests were breaking out. So we had both news that WhatsApp had recently been encrypted and also mass protests that were being organized on WhatsApp. And the government told people, and I even have a picture of like a physical flyer that had been wheat pasted onto public space that, you know, if you are messaging about the protests, the government will see it on WhatsApp and you will be thrown in jail or whatever. It was just blatant lies and threats, but it was new enough that WhatsApp was end-to-end encrypted that people were worried. And I, at the time, and others around the time too, it was still popular to be doing digital security trainings because these kinds of tools were not ubiquitous yet, and we couldn't take end-to-end encryption for granted. Getting a lot of questions from activists there, like, is it true? Like, will they be able to see that I'm organizing a protest? And so that was one thing. So that's an interesting one that sort of gave people the panopticon thing, right, where they felt watched, even if they weren't. Another one kind of back in those days as well, like maybe folks will remember there were bloggers in Ethiopia that were imprisoned, again, for, yeah, like just participating in a digital security training. And the excuse sort of there, the the public turned against this and the bloggers unfortunately didn't have a lot of support. Even though they were in prison, they were journalists. It was for something on digital security, you know, what's that? The public was being told that this was like clandestine activity. It's like, why were they engaging in a workshop about how to use encryption? That's for spies. So they were sort of just suspicion about why they would have to do that was raised. And then another one I'll share, this is mostly true of Bangladesh, but I think also it's more of a modern example as well, but I think also drives a lot with the discussion in India and Brazil as well around the spread of disinformation is one where there's just a lot of virality now with these platforms being so big with so many users, like particularly uh, WhatsApp and Telegram. Maybe there's disinformation or other kinds of messages that get passed around to a lot of people. A lot of people see them and that we see sort of in the offline world, mob-like responses to that, or it has offline effects. So the result of that is maybe that the countries are saying they don't really want to break the encryption. They don't want access to the message, but what they would like is something called traceability, or I like to think of it as enhanced metadata. They want to know who's seen the message and how many other people have seen the message and where where it came from originally, which would be sort of a violation of confidentiality, but not one that we think of as particularly threatening to the content of the message itself in the way that it's designed. And so, yeah, disinformation's one, election disinformation, you know, that'll come up. But then another one that I find really fascinating that's in this sort of region and it's in this sort of line of thinking is that offline effect. So this perception that in Bangladesh, they had some instances where 
buses full of people would get robbed, like the entire bus would get robbed by a bunch of people or something. And that they were saying that the crime, these kinds of criminal acts are being organized on into encrypted apps like WhatsApp. So it's not that people cared necessarily about the online crime or the online sort of illicit use. What they cared about, what they were mobilized around was stopping offline crime that was being organized on the internet. And that's a little bit of a departure from what we see in the West and in the North, global North. Yeah. There's so many things already that I wanted to just kind of expand upon. This idea here about traceability, that these governments want to see who has seen a message or who has received it. For folks who might not be aware of like all of the data that is, I guess, not available with end-to-end encryption. Uh, The question is like, so we can't currently see that, right? Like if cops request something from WhatsApp and I use WhatsApp and I've received a message from my friend, WhatsApp, it's not that they won't, it's that they are not technologically capable of delivering that information. Am I correct in that? Because I might be wrong. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. This is the whole point. We focus a lot on you know, what happens if it gets broken? You know, what happens, what a backdoor looks like? How are you going to achieve the backdoor? But I mean, in my view, the fact that you've had to rewrite or completely re-engineer a communication system is the high bar. And to have a government have to step in and say, okay, now you have to like completely re- revise and remake your communication system in and of itself is a real fail. Obviously not all apps are going to be able to do that. Even WhatsApp would struggle to do it with their infinite amount of money. Every single message that ever goes into their platform ever would have to be hashed somehow or have some kind of fingerprint or identity to it. And that any other message in the future also would need to be compared against that to see if it's the same message. And then you would have to keep a log of that all of those different sends, all of those different, you know, it just seems like a lot. It seems like a lot of data retention that a system that would have traceability would have to do. I think of these things as feature requests, right? I tend to think of a backdoor as a feature request that is going to be very costly to implement. It's going to undermine the rest of the system's goals. Users aren't going to like it, right? Like if you evaluate it like a feature request, really it's not, it's not a great one. It's going to get a lot of GitHub issue going. <laughs> I think it's also important that we like we talk about like you see this as a feature request and also that it's not retrieving the message for like one person. It's not retrieving one message either. It's not like changing things as a analog like oh, we just want to look at one envelope, you know? Like it's designing the system in an entirely different way and therefore it makes like everyone's envelopes to use a mediocre metaphor like it makes everyone's security worse and i think a good example here is actually like when we fly in the united states we all have to have luggage that if it's locked the keys have to be accessible by the tsa that's required and that means that we all have the same baseline of like insecurity because here's another fun fact. When that first happened, uh, there was like a newspaper that published a photo of the keys that the TSA would use to like as sort of master keys to get into any piece of luggage that was locked. And I think that was like in the first like week of that being a requirement and already it was broken. Like already 
it was revealed. It says you could copy those keys from a photo. They were not difficult to copy. And that's what's happening here. Like we're changing the requirements for everyone. We're not saying we just want to get into this one piece of luggage. The way that the system has been designed is that we're saying, well, we want the system to be weaker. That's terrible. <laughs> That's right. I think I love this metaphor because there are a lot of ways to make additional points by expanding it a bit. It's not even just that you want to open one suitcase. It's that we've gone beyond a simple request for a backdoor. We want to know people's networks, who they talk to, how often they talk to them. This is stuff that the FBI can already get, actually. There's a sort of really handy internal memo within the FBI that circulated of what information you can get from what end-to-end encrypted apps. And this is all metadata that you can already get. But I think the point is that when you now start talking about backdoors, there's a lot more to it. Well, I know we're going to talk soon about what's happening in Europe and the US, but it isn't like, can you please decrypt this one message? It's can we have access to all of this user's messages over time so we can build our case? Can we actually help potential victims in these conversations? There's so many different feature requests being made against all of these, but you know, in the case of the, the suitcase metaphor, it also is now like not special to be using these tools. It, it's not like flying where the argument is, well, if you're going to travel internationally, then that's special. And so that's why the things you're traveling with need to be subject to surveillance. It's like all of our homes now have to be and all the time, because we're not just using encryption for special things. We're using it for everything. We are using it to talk to our family. Of course, we're using it to talk to our teachers, our coaches, in some cases, again, taking the global South as maybe where it's more ubiquitous. Folks are using built-in financial transaction features, they're talking to their doctors, they're booking airline tickets and doing other discussions with customer service. I mean, there's so many different things that these platforms do now, and they are ubiquitous. I mean, 3 billion people use end-to-end encrypted apps now. It's not exceptional, and it shouldn't be allowed that all of us who aren't criminals (laughs) have to be subjected to this all the time, right? Yeah. You mentioned, you know, we're going to be talking about what threats are coming, you know, to the EU and to the United States. And I'm glad you just kind of set that question up immediately because in my earlier days when I was working on encryption, I definitely saw similarities between like how the United States and how the European Union used legislation to try to weaken encryption, but I have not kept up with that space. So I just kind of want to check in. What are the latest threats to encryption happening? Uh, Let's start particularly with, you know, the, the EU and the UK. Sure, I'll take them in reverse order. The UK has something called the Online Safety Bill that hasn't passed yet, but that includes explicit, it calls out end-to-end encryption as being not exempt from what the bill is trying to do around child safety and platform responsibility to clean up um, child sexual abuse material from the internet and other sorts of things. So that one I think is just a blanket it's getting pushed through because there's a lot of support for it because of the child abuse framing. And that's also true in the EU as well. But the EU, their regulation departs in some important ways from what the UK is trying to do. So the proposed regulation is largely about child abuse and it has many different parts to it. It sort of sets up 
you know, an agency that deals with this. There's a lot of things related to that, but there is something where all platforms have to scan for child sexual abuse material. And they also don't exhibit encryption, but they don't necessarily call it out directly like the UK does. And the reason why this is important is that they've sort of set the requirement and then just told companies to figure it out. They're not being prescriptive about how the companies do it. And then the other thing they're doing is they're also providing, if a company is too small, for example, to have the scale or the resources necessary to build these systems themselves, the EU has built an API or it's built a tool that they can plug in and use. And again, they're not prescribing how, they're just saying you have to. And it's really quite difficult to push back on that from a technical stance because they're not saying how to do it. They're just saying it has to be done. So then the challenge is convincing them that it's an incompatible request that that breaks encryption. And they can just then go ahead and say back, no, it doesn't. And then you're sort of at, <laughs> you're sort of at an impasse, right? This sounds a lot like what has happened in the United States before, particularly this sort of blanket requests of figure it out. There's obviously, right, a lot of nuances here about what the framing is about, okay, this time we're focusing on child sexual abuse material, uh, sometimes shortened as CSAM, C-S-A-M. And the request is like, okay, you have to scan. And if you're too small, well, too bad. Like we've built this API. And like, if you use encryption, well, you can figure it out. Like you can figure out how to mix oil and water. And that's a thing that happens in the United States as well, which is like, we approve of encryption, but we want encryption that doesn't encrypt for everyone. (laughs) And the way it's been framed before is this nerd harder kind of problem that governments go to technologists and they say, we want these two incompatible things to happen within the same system. And if you can't figure it out, that's your fault you're the people who are making crime happen in the dark. And I just think it's important to kind of hit on that immediately that this is something we've seen before. Like what I have heard referred to as the nerd harder problem. Like surely if you're smart enough, you can figure it out. That's right. Yeah, this is how we we refer to it in a sort of cavalier way, the nerd harder thing. I would say that in 2020, there was a new term that's been introduced that I sort of hear a little bit more often. And it doesn't always apply because, you know, we're talking about existing systems that now have to be changed. And I was sort of saying before that I think that's a high enough bar that it's a fail already. People are going to not like it and it's gonna it's a real challenge for lawmakers. And and just to be clear, like we've been winning. Like <laughs> I wanna take a moment to celebrate the fact that we have strong indent encryption. It's yeah. everywhere and so far everything is cool. But one thing in 2020 that I started hearing more of, and this comes directly out of a statement made by the Five Eyes countries plus Japan and India, which is a line in that statement, something to the tune of, you shouldn't deliberately design a system that won't allow judicial oversight over the content or something like that, (laughs) deliberately design. And so this gets at something that I worry about a little bit in the background, which is, you know, we're really worried about preserving the encryption we already have. And I'm always delighted to see when, you know, you get an announcement by a big tech company that happened in the last short while by Facebook saying like, we're going to move forward with end-to-end encryption in Messenger. 
that's great. That's a really important direction of travel. But I worry about a lot of the small entrants to the space, the small companies, folks that are thinking about new and innovative uses for encryption that are put off by that deliberately designed clause and they're not making new stuff. And that's, I think, something we don't really pay attention to enough. But I know that has hampered innovation in Australia that we haven't mentioned yet, which successfully banned encryption. Well, no, I should put it in more (laughs) nuanced terms. Australia successfully introduced a backdoor for tech that is built in Australia and has to allow for the Australian government to request a backdoor if they want it. So it's narrow, but still quite significant because it's the only anti-encryption law in the books that's been successful, but it has had the very important adverse effect of tech companies in Australia not being competitive in the market because nobody trusts their encryption. That's insane. I knew that that law had been introduced a while ago, the request for the backdoor. And like you said, it's also super interesting to see that one of the side effects is that now no one trusts their encryption. Can you explain more about it? Just because I'm so, it sounds so interesting, like these byproducts of this law. It's really interesting. And I want to also point out that Australia is a five eyes country. And I think it's probably safe to assume that the five eyes countries have thought about these things together, right? All of the countries we've named, almost all of them, right? Canada too has some problematic bill right now. They're all sort of looking at this and I think they've done so in a concerted way. Australia being the one country that seems with the right conditions to actually just go ahead and pass it. And it worked. So you've got a spread. And, and there are some folks, I think even those in based in Australia who feel like it may just never change and it will kind of always persist as the bad example. And maybe that's in effect a good thing because we can always point to it and say, ah, this is this doesn't work. It's, it's your economy suffering. And, but there is evidence of it. So if you want to look it up, the Internet Society put out a report on the economic effect of TOLA. T-O-L-A is the name of the law or the shorthand for the law. It effectively just goes through and looks at the sort of economic effects of a law that would intentionally make your tech sector less competitive on something as important as security and privacy. Whereas, you know, in the West, uh, especially in the United States, privacy is a business model. I mean, there are people who make who yeah. make real <laughs> um, monetary choices based on the tech they buy because of their privacy. Yeah. The threats that we had, I, I think something you, that was really interesting that you said is like, we've been winning because I also thought it was interesting, like there might be folks who are listening to this and we talk about how these things have been around for years. There's a term that gets thrown around a lot, the crypto wars, which is, you know, a sort of government struggle to see encrypted communications or encrypted data. Uh, And it goes back all the way to like the nineties. And when we hear those kinds of things like, okay, well, this has been going on for like 30 years. And at the same time I have iMessage, you know, and people around the world have WhatsApp and they are using it. I guess the question then is like, how are these recent threats about child sexual abuse material, about scanning for this type of material, how are these threats any different in the sense of like, is there a greater chance of them winning? Well, yeah, and I think this is a good way of framing the question because we also are seeing in general kind of a lot of pushback against all kinds of content. It really changed my approach to advocacy around this when CDT put out a report with 
the people in the organization working on encryption and the people in the organization working on free expression, mostly on social media platforms. So this would be Greg Nojime from our security and surveillance team and then Emma Lonzo from our freedom of expression team. And we took an approach where we thought of this problem in terms of content moderation, not in terms of encryption first. So we think about then, okay, what are the stages of content moderation on all platforms? you know, where you sort of define what you're looking for, you detect what you're looking for. And then there's like several steps that follow, right? You have to mitigate whatever harm there is. And social media companies have multiple tools at their disposal to do so. You typically then give people some recourse and remedy if there was a mistake that was made. You have human review in the loop. And then you have all this education you need to do around the people using the platform so they know how to avoid having their content moderated. So if you start from that framework, and again, this is contentious all over the internet right now. CSAM, disinformation, all of these things are being fought in all levels. Most of this stuff is, is out in public. It's not encrypted. Then you can think about, okay, how, did, how would an encrypted environment handle this? And you have so fewer places to intervene, right? And most people are talking about, like, when we look at all these laws, we look at what the EU and the UK and all these places are trying to do, they're mostly worried about the detection phase. They spend all their time figuring out how can you get what is unseen. And they don't think about the fact that, okay, but if you can, then what do you do? You send the file that you found to NECMEC, which is an acronym for the folks that keep a hash database of all the known CSAM, you know, what do you do with it then? And also, how can you make sure that it's actually correct? Because a lot of these detection mechanisms aren't great. AI is always overstated in its capabilities. We're talking about computer vision or natural language processing in some proposals where you would want to intervene based on text messages, grooming, that sort of thing. like really difficult to imagine an AI being any good at telling the difference between an adult talking to a child because the adult's a teacher and the and the child you know is a student and they're having just a normal conversation and how could you tell when that conversation veers into grooming based on natural language processing of encrypted data and a homomorphic but, you know, it doesn't matter how many layers of crypto you, you put on top of it to improve that. The AI is still probably going to be wrong sometimes. And then you have a human in the loop. So you effectively decrypted it so that you can have review. You have remedy and you have all these other things. So, so I guess I'm getting a bit far afield from your original question, but I think what's changed is that we're really, really focused on controlling information on the Internet at large and encryption is getting swept up in it. And I think law enforcement and intelligence community, the folks who started the original crypto wars are really bootstrapping off of that larger conversation of wanting to clean up the internet of all of this garbage. And so I think they're really succeeding because there's a lot of visible evidence that this is a problem because people are on social media platforms and they sort of see it for themselves. There's a lot of stories that are very emotional, that are no doubt important, that are no doubt very moving, that people have direct experience with. And then they're applying that very same scenario, but just with encryption, and they're not really making a distinction between the two. I had never heard it like this. This is fascinating, that the recent threats uh, are part of a broader clean sweep of the internet. 
like it all makes so much sense like uh like it feels like you just put like a puzzle piece you know into something much broader for me and i was like oh yeah like okay that makes so much sense i completely see it now and it also kind of connects like why this fight is so difficult because and why this time it's different because also i think you'll also find that there's a lot of people online who think that certain platforms are littered with this kind of material and i don't know if that's true you will find that people believe that after elon musk bought twitter that he solved child sexual abuse material on the platform and i don't know where that comes from i'm gonna be perfectly honest like i don't know how do people have proof of that (laughs) like because seeing those things before is already a failure of the system but like i don't know who was seeing those things and i don't know how you can have that kind of comparison point to say like i saw this all the time before and now i don't see all this now and i don't know anyone who is a deep twitter user who's like chronically addicted to this horrible thing who says that that's true and so it's just this kind of thing where like it feels like it's an impossible fight now because we have created also narratives and narratives are running amok in the community and multiple communities where i don't know like things are solved that haven't been solved and it just kind of adds fuel to the fire i think you're right (laughs) that's its own thing you know (laughs) it is and the i think because there's also no objective way to know you're describing there are a lot of feelings people have a lot of feelings about this stuff and there's not a lot of detail contour statistics behind it right We keep hearing that Facebook sends some extraordinarily high number of reports to NECMEC about the child abuse material it finds on its platform every single day, right? And the risk then is that this number gets compared to another number, which is the number of reports it gets after Facebook Messenger goes into encrypted, and that those numbers are going to be wildly different. We're very worried about you know what what that means. I think this indicates a larger trend where we actually don't know what's going on on a lot of these platforms, even the ones that are straight up in the clear. And we rely a lot on the companies themselves reporting this. I think this also comes in a climate in the EU where there's a push to regulate companies because they largely don't trust these companies because they're largely American companies and they have been dodging regulation. And I've heard some narratives where they feel like WhatsApp or other companies are just using encryption as an excuse to not have to do content moderation. I don't know that that's a really genuine argument, but it's one of those things when you hear it, it makes you feel like, oh, right, well, we sort of despise these companies for whatever reason a lot of times, and this gives you one more reason to sort of suspect that they're trying to skirt regulation. Again, I don't know if it's true. I just know that these kinds of arguments work. And it's useful and necessary, I would say, that to push back against encryption, we actually really do need platforms to work with not just because we're aligned, because they don't want to spend the time and money to change their systems and and we want freedom, because we really don't know what's going on and we need to figure out the best ways to solve these problems and, and we obviously can't do it without these statistics and that sort of thing. But to go back to one more thing before we get away from it on this question of like the broader movement to sort of clean up content, this is precisely why 
I tend to not always talk about these tools as being privacy respecting, but they're also censorship resistant. In many places of the world where there's not such a strong feeling about individual and personal privacy, sometimes that is replaced by an inability to access mainstream media, news, accurate information, and so on, because there's a heavy censorship regime in place. I'm mostly thinking about Eastern Europe and sort of this obsession with Telegram, which for a lot of people who are security and privacy minded are really suspicious of, but it makes a lot of sense when you consider those same places where it's very popular is a lot of heavy censorship. So people are not necessarily using Telegram for their own safety, personal safety, they're using it to access content that's blocked. And I think that that drawing that line between you're going to censor child sexual abuse material, which is illegal and disgusting, and we want it to go away. But it's so very easy to slide that knob over into now you're also going to block disinformation. And you might at some point take it a step further and block other kinds of content too. And you just continue down that path. And then you do have like a pretty easy way of mass censoring certain kinds of content from the internet that probably shouldn't be censored. We've talked quite a bit about that there is no system that features both end-to-end encryption and limited access to outside parties. Uh, And every time I've been in conversations like this, this always feels like just the, the understood truth. Like it's like, okay, yeah, we, uh, we start from there and we just kind of launch into a bunch of other things. But I think it's a really good time to hammer on this, right? Why are end-to-end encryption and limited access or lawful access or access to anyone who isn't within the end-to-end encrypted environment, why are those features incompatible with one another? There are so many answers to this question, and I, I'm, ne- I'm going to avoid saying math. I'm not going to talk about how math doesn't work, because that's a really nerdy um, response that, that used to work, and, and, but I think it, it doesn't, especially in a climate where we're always talking about you know, these very heart-wrenching sort of emotional conversations. But it doesn't. <laughs> it's incompatible. Look, I think of it as an architectural design choice mm-hmm. that internet service providers, governments, all kinds of people who've been sitting on the network, on the wire in various places, the infamous landing point for undersea cables in the UK where 90% of the world's traffic goes through and they filter it all on our behalf and make sure that it's not full of malware. These folks have unfortunately really abused our trust. They've demonstrated that they can't be trusted with this. And so as a result, there's been a big push to move all the data that we can to the endpoints. And with encryption, keeping whatever's on the wire, whatever you could passively pick up, encrypted. You know, it's just bits and bytes. You can't you can't tell what it is. And so if you push all of the data to the endpoints, the endpoints being, you know, our user devices, our phones, our laptops, and then the applications that we use, if it's, you know, a website or, or a cloud service or something like that, as being the place where you have to go to get access, then you have different choices to make. You can choose as law enforcement or intelligence community member to go to a service and ask, hey, Gmail, can I get access to some of this data? Hey, WhatsApp, can I get access to some of this data? And in the case of Gmail, you can have it. It's there, right? You (laughs) just need a warrant, need, you know, a judge, and it's yours. With WhatsApp, you 
need all of those things usually, but then you can't get all of it. You can get some of it. You can get some significant stuff, but you can't have the messages, but they don't not exist. They just don't exist where you've gone to go look for them. You have to now go to an end point, the other end. You have to go find the person with the phone or the laptop or something and, and get it there. And, and it's not impossible, right? It's just harder. It's just really a lot more difficult. And that's important because for things where civil liberties are involved, when it's your own personal conversations, the bar should be very high. And I guess the warrant system and the sort of legal system is meant to be a high bar, but now we have this technological high bar. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I would just say it's not all perfect because we've seeded the imagination of the folks who are looking for access and they're like, okay, now what can we do with the user device? What can we do at that endpoint that lowers that bar, that decreases friction, that maybe gives us a way in? And that's where we see proposals that are new and they're generally referred to as client side scanning. So this is the idea that, you know, before you've even sent your data into the network or across your service, if it's end-to-end encrypted or otherwise, that your operating system or the application you're using like checks it, you know, checks that that image you're uploading isn't known child sexual abuse material or checks that if you are a child account using iMessage that you're not sexting based on the words you're typing. I think that's more obviously a violation of civil liberties, right? It's similar to like compelled decryption. There's a whole debate around this where if you're passing through a border or something that your face or your thumbprint or your passcode, that you can be compelled to decrypt your device and hand it over to law enforcement at request. No, you have to have a warrant, right? So client-side scanning would reduce friction, but it would also be warrantless access for a lot of people, I, maybe I should just talk about myself. For me, my phone is a digital version of myself. I'm attached to it. It's very much something that I want to be acting in my best interest all the time and not something that I want to turn against me and be scanning my content for it to make sure I'm not committing any crimes. And I think coming up with design ideas or technical solutions on that level would be really, really worrisome. But we are seeing that as being introduced and becoming popular with some folks like in Europe, for example. That's such an interesting way to put it as well, that your phone is a digital version of you. And I think that's true for everyone. And imagine if we had this system where our phones were the things that were scanning for content against us. And again, we're not arguing here that I should be allowed to hide all of the crimes I have done, like particularly heinous ones against certain individuals. Like, that's not actually what's happening. It's just that once you introduce that system, it is everyone's system now. And imagine having an adversarial relationship with your phone. It's such a different approach to everything we do that I'm excited because I'm like, wow, I'd love to think through all of the problems, but I'm also like, they're all problems. There's no like positives. <laughs> like it's only exciting as a thought experiment. It's a terrible idea. Like it is a terrible, terrible, dangerous idea that the things we store all of our information on, that they're adversarial to us. I wanted to kind of also ask like that similar question I had at the beginning here, talking about stories. You know, what stories do we have of, of what other governments tell their people? On the same thing here, 
of governments trying to weaken encryption, essentially. Do we have stories of governments trying to make such an incompatible system a reality? Yeah, I'm trying to think through some really specific ones. You know, there are definitely places where things, governments get away with a lot more. They typically, we don't always identify with where that happens. Like I'm thinking particularly of of Iran and, and China, where if an app becomes really popular in Iran in particular, there are reports that I've seen from where I used to work at Article 19, have Masa Alamadarni has written some really great reports on how the Iranian government will will notice that an app has become popular and then just like re-engineer it. The state, the government will just like make a copycat and get people to migrate sort of slowly over time. And then everybody's on the new app. It's state run, government controlled, and you can do the same things and then people forget about the other one. And, and then they've like captured you. And uh, they often incentivize with, there's like a lot of financial services and transactions that happen in those apps because the economy is, is so unstable. So folks are using like crypto and things like that, or like intermediary coins to do stable transactions. And the Iranian government was like, their response was like, well, we will just do that. We'll just like make this for you. Um, and, and then people use that. So like not a model we want, right? Not something that would work here, for yeah. example. Uh, China is also really good at that too, right? They just like have their own sort of internet ecosystem to the degree that there's a lot of Chinese diaspora that use those tools too, because there's no really way then to talk to their friends and family across borders or their employers, for example. So they, you know, those apps need to be available outside of China. But yeah, just like having the state just like make the tech for you or sponsor the creation of the technology is, is like pretty common and making sure it works and that it works well and it has all the features you would expect from all the other apps, but just, you know, surveilled. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's completely insane. That's like what the, just like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just do it ourselves, you know? And just yeah. the simple, it's funny. Um, I don't know if it's funny. Um, there are <laughs> similar problems that we see at our company uh, as a cybersecurity company of copycat apps, you know, like copycat apps that sneak onto like Google Play or don't even sneak onto Google Play, but say that they are the app that someone is looking for, but you find it through a third party website, you know, like you search it on Google and you go to a website rather than going to Google Play and you just download it there. And it's like, it's malware, you know, like it's extremely, It's it's malware. It's not anything other than malware. And to know that this is a campaign, you know, like that this is a, a model for entire governments is, that's a lot, you know, to take in yeah. and to learn. <laughs> Something I also think is interesting is that I think the government is sometimes asked to be trusted in these systems, particularly in the United States. I've heard of proposals that are referred to as key escrow and like a really simple way to break it down is that the government says, okay, like, we're not going to hold the key ourselves. We're going to hold, like, part of the key. Imagine a really weird idea where there's multiple keys that are required to decrypt something. And that way, we don't have, like, unilateral control over it. It's just like, okay, there have to be many people's hands on the levers to have something happen. That's a really boiled down, 
super specific description of the proposal, but that's kind of what it is. Um, and so my question here though is like, when those things are proposed, do we have any reason to trust that such a key would not be stolen? Like that something wouldn't be compromised? Because again, in like cybersecurity, like we've seen extraordinarily powerful tools like from the NSA, Eternal Blue getting leaked. We've seen the government's own secrets getting leaked. And so I guess my question here is like when the government says, hey, trust us with part of this system, do we have a reason to trust them with part of this system? <laughs> right. You're asking the right question because I think generally the answer is no, right? We Over and over again, we've sort of pushed back on this idea that there should be. And there's been a lot of technical developments in making the key escrow system sophisticated such that there would be checks and balances and controls and so on. And we don't even get into those details anymore because for most <laughs> folks, the, just the start of the conversation is a no, right? Especially when, and we've sort of been talking about this a lot, it isn't now different to be on the internet. It's not like you go on it anymore and then you get off it. Like we used to, like the metaphor that we we say, like it's, we're always connected. We're using it all the time. It would be potentially giving access, even in limited cases, to any aspect of our lives. And I think people just really are uncomfortable with that. I feel like I very rarely have conversations that are truly off the record, that it's like you could walk out into a field, stand by a babbling brook and like talk to your best friend about your deep, dark secrets without using the Internet. It never happens. And with COVID, we saw this accelerated, right? We were performing all of our work functions, all of our school functions on the internet. We're having all of our family and friends conversations happening online, unless you were in the, you know, the room with the same people, however long you, you were social distancing. We're doing it all online. I mean, it's not, it's not a trivial thing to just be like, oh no, we'll, we will make sure we only use this in certain cases or something like that. I mean, you're really asking people, you know, is, would it be okay if, you know, law enforcement could access any any part of your life. And I think for most people, the answer is no at this point. I particularly enjoy what you said there. Like, there have been technical improvements, you know, the sophistication of such a key escrow system. And it's always like, no, 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 we don't even have to worry about that. Like, we don't even have to get into that because we can just say no. And it, it just reminds me, like, like there's like that tail, like the frog and the scorpion, you know, where like the scorpion's like, hey, I got to go across this river. Can I jump on your back frog? And the frog's like, uh, you're a scorpion. Like, why would I do that? And he's like, well, look, if I sting you, we're both going to die. We both have reason to. And then the scorpion stings the frog. And he's like, it's, it's in my nature. What do you want me to do? And I love that we've kind of had the same. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. You've already fooled us. You've stung us many times. <laughs> And we're, we got it, you know? I wanted to close out here because one of the things that I have seen you say before in presentations and I've heard other people say, right, is that in this fight for encryption, there's a lot of stories being thrown at us, the public. And we've talked about so many of them today, you know, uh, ways to frame encryption as a threat. And one of the ways we can push back on all of that is that we can present our own narratives and so I wanted to close out with, can we share some stories of encryption being a force for good? There are a lot. And I really like the opportunity to talk about this side of things. We don't give it enough exposure. 
But one of the things CDT is doing with others, um, the Internet Society and Global Partners Digital, we're all founding members of something called the Global Encryption Coalition. Because as you notice, there's a lot of threats around the world and we're kind of having to band together of like hundreds of civil society organizations and small companies to try to push back against that. But it also gives us an opportunity to hear from the ways that folks are using encryption and why it keeps them safe from a wide variety of, of different communities. And so that is something that we tried to establish and celebrate uh, for Global Encryption Day, which is now a thing. It's every October 21st. And so you can go also to the Global Encryption Coalition site and see some videos from people. But I can share just like some top lines of like why this is so, so important. And I want to start with one that's actually not on the site, but that I think is really compelling in the discussions around child safety, which is that, you know, children need privacy too. Um, you know, they're sort of surveilled all day, they're being parented all day, and not that those there's anything wrong with that, but I think we need to remember that not all children are in super safe environments. Their people who are in charge of parenting them or teaching them may be their adversaries. In fact, like statistically, that is true. That's made even worse when that child may be LGBTQ they may have intersecting conditions that make that worse. So I think that's an important one to remember is, you know, when child safety organizations are dealing with migrant children or traffic children who may be LGBTQ, they need secure lines to communicate with, with those children. So that can keep kids safe. Another one, uh, of course, is being uh, from the LGBT community and uh, a lot of places on earth is still kind of a dangerous thing. And so encryption can be a way of just expressing yourself or being able to connect with activists or other kinds of movements around changing that, but also just like living your life, right? It's important to remember that that is, we can't take those kinds of civil liberties for granted everywhere. Um, I would say just for fun to throw one in, like everybody, you know, maybe not everybody, but a lot of us can picture what it's like to be dating online these days. And that in a world that, um, you know, is very sort of internet heavy, we are internet mediated, I should say, even something like dating, which is something that we all kind of have to do these days um, using the internet. It's nice if you can imagine that those applications have some of your security and privacy in mind. So that that's one example. We still have the classic ones that we've been talking about for years, right? Which is that if you want good reporting, if you want to know what's happening in countries where there's high conflict, where there are authoritarian regimes in place, you need journalists and you need those journalists to be safe and you need them to be able to move around and they have to have encryption to do their work. And even here where, you know, media is welcomed and it's somewhat safe to report on issues, you still, as someone doing investigative reporting, need to keep your sources safe. So it's not just about the journalists themselves, like people they talk to also need to be protected. So encryption is absolutely central to doing reporting. We've heard a lot of really interesting stories from folks living in Ukraine, because even a couple of years, like starting a couple of years before the actual physical land invasion of Ukraine, Russia had really been messing with uh, Ukraine's access to the internet and trying to get it routed through Russia and sort of making some uh, strategic disruptions. And so we know that that has been, the digital strategy has been part of Russia's war against Ukraine for a while now. So it, giving folks in high conflict zones like Ukraine access to encryption is really important just for autonomy and to be able to fight back and 
and I'll end with the last one that I think is at the top of everyone's mind in the US right now with the rollback of uh, protection or right to abortion. Folks had been previously just experiencing this in like places like pockets like Latin America and in Ireland for a while. Like now just to get basic health, um, some folks need to use encryption. And even in a democracy like the United States, because you can actually be sued now in the US if you get an abortion in a place where it's illegal. And in a civil suit, you could potentially get that endpoint data exposed by an intimate partner or somebody who has physical access to your phone. So anyway, the stakes are really high. <laughs> it's important to make sure that, uh, you know, we can protect people because things change too, right? Things might be fine now in democratic places like Europe and so on, where the keys are definitely locked away. We're not going to use them. We pinky promise. And then all of a sudden the political climate changes. And then that's like a huge risk. Let's not stack the deck like that, shall we? That seems kind of risky. I'm glad you brought up the abortion access because I haven't seen a event that has so completely changed the privacy and security of so many people within one second. Because the night before, I often say the night before, right? Because like it's it's easier to understand. But literally before the opinion was issued, the second before, it was different. <laughs> like people didn't have to worry about protecting this information. And then suddenly they did. And people can agree or disagree about like the moralistic argument there. But imagine if you wake up and your phone is your adversary, like that's what it would be. And the amount of chaos that ensued from that for so many people in their private lives is actually not something that we want to repeat. That's it. It's not something we want to repeat because it could happen to you for something that you think should be allowed. And like, wow, who'd have thunk that stuff happens? It absolutely does. And so, yeah, I, every time we talk about it, it just has to be hammered on um, because, uh, again, I haven't seen that. We don't have a corollary of the same magnitude here uh, in the States that, that I can remember in modern history. And so, yeah, it's just always good to remind folks about it. Um, Mallory, we have spoken about so much, and I just wanted to thank you again, for coming on today's show and just going through so many things and trying to make encryption more accessible for everyone uh, in at least legibility. Um, thank you again so much. Pleasure. I was happy to catch everybody up. There is a lot going on. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McAleod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. 